You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Sophie is off this week. We begin with breaking news related to the unsolved murder of 13 year old Marissa Shen. Police have narrowed the timeline before her death, and they believe it happened in Burnaby Central Park where she was found. Let's go straight to our Ramina Dea for the latest on this story. And Ramina, police also appealing for video and talking about potential suspects. They are, Chris. I hit now identifying 90 persons of interest in this investigation, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are all suspects. They are following up on 200 tips. The timeline of Shen's whereabouts, as you mentioned, has also been updated. We now know that the teen was last seen alive walking near Central Boulevard and McKay Avenue in Burnaby at 7.38 p.m. on July 18th, but we still don't know what time she entered Central Park, where her body was found in the bushes at 1.10 a.m. on Wednesday, July 19th. Also an unusual request today, Chris, by IHIT. They're now asking the public and the media for specific video footage and pictures from Shen's vigil in Central Park on July 22nd. And they're also looking for video and pictures from her funeral at Mountain View Cemetery in Vancouver on July 28th. Do investigators believe the killer was at the funeral or at the vigil on the 22nd? We don't know. We're asking uh, for people to provide this information because um, of the, the nature of the offence and the attention that it's drawn nationwide. We, you know, we would be remiss not to ask for it. Romina, we've heard some criticism for the lack of information that police have shared up until now. Does this change anything? Well, it's interesting. We've heard criticism from both the public and from experts, Chris. A few weeks ago, we spoke to a former cop who is now a criminology professor out at Western University in Ontario. And he was critical, uh, saying that IHIT wasn't uh, releasing enough information. They were keeping the public in the dark. He had an interesting perspective today on IHIT's unusual request. Take a listen. The information here seems conflicting. We were told that this was a random act of violence. And now that they're crowdsourcing uh, footage of the vigil or the funeral, and there is a short list, and I use that term uh, somewhat facetiously, of 90 persons of interest, it would suggest, in fact, that there uh, is some connection between the killer and the victim. Now, IHIT is still calling this a random murder, Chris. Investigators are currently reviewing over a thousand hours of video from 60 different locations. Chris. All right, let's hope it yields some new clues. Thanks very much, Ramina. A racist outburst caught on video is going viral tonight. It all unfolded on SkyTrain this week as stunned passengers looked on. Nadia Stewart spoke with the woman who shot one of the videos. And Nadia, explain what happened. It all started just after the train left the production way SkyTrain station. A woman lashes out at an elderly Filipino couple, all because she says they were speaking too loudly in their native language. For a train ride that lasted only a few stops, it was a short but shocking verbal attack. Anybody would be shaken up, but, you know, if, if they were attacked by, you know by some stranger. It happened around noon on Monday between the production way and Hold'em Skytrain stations. The target, an elderly Filipino couple 
speaking their native language. She turned around and all was well. They were just probably having a little bit of a heated conversation. That's when she says the woman in this video became agitated. The situation quickly escalated. She said, you're a stupid Filipino. Um, if you decide to live in this country, you should learn how to speak English. Um, you go back to the Philippines. I asked him to talk a little quiet. Within seconds, her attack on the couple grew to include the passengers coming to their defense. Rhea and another witness posting these cell phone videos on Facebook, both of which have been viewed thousands of times, including by transit police, who say the woman is 75 years old, lives in New Westminster, and is known to them. Police say she will be spoken to. Correa says this kind of behavior cannot be tolerated. Considering that it was so extreme and so incredibly hateful, um, I wanted to spread to everyone that this is what's happening in our world today, sadly. And it's happening in the very city that we call our home. Online reaction has been swift, condemning the tirade and defending the couple. TransLink is now investigating. Back to you. All right, Nadia, thank you very much. There is a growing petition tonight to remove bike lanes in downtown Vancouver, citing a lack of consultation and the general traffic chaos that's been created. Of key concern, the ongoing disruption involving the Burrard Street Bridge. Now, Grace Key is live there tonight, and Grace, the man behind this position is arguing these lanes are having the opposite effect of creating a greener city. Yeah, that's certainly one of his arguments. He's saying that it's causing uh, traffic congestion. There's long lines to get onto the Broad Street Bridge, and that means cars are sitting there idling. So this West End resident is uh, pushing a movement now to make a change. For anyone who's traveled around Burrard Street Bridge in the last few months, you know it can be a true test on your patience. Upgrades to the bridge continue. Lanes are blocked. Trying to make a turn can be a challenge. And then there are the bike lanes. Terrible. Useless. It was far better before. So now that things are a little more segregated, um, we can all be safer, basically. So what's wrong with that? I think it's safer for the bikers and the drivers. Stefan Illiman is a West End resident who's had enough. He started an online petition that's generated more than 2,300 supporters. He wants not only a complete stop to construction on the Burrard Street Bridge, but he also wants the city to get rid of all the bike lanes throughout Vancouver. The number of bicycles and cyclists, which is, uh, the city says, about 10% of commuters, that doesn't justify it. I mean, a democracy is not supposed to work on 10%. It's supposed to work on 90%. According to the city, the number of cyclists using the bridge since the barriers have been in place has almost doubled. There are six to 7,000 cyclists a day crossing Broad Street Bridge. The delays that people are experiencing now are not as a result of the improved bike facility. Uh, it is just the nature of the construction. Uh, once the construction is complete, people are going to find that to be a very functional intersection and a big improvement over what was there before. Stefan realizes the chances of the bike lanes being removed anytime soon likely won't happen. But that doesn't mean he's giving up. I don't think they will throw in the towel. So we're going to fight and uh, we're going to bring this issue to the next election. 
Yeah, so that petition organizer is also part of a group called Restore Vancouver. And as you heard, they certainly do uh, hope to become a political movement and hopefully have their own candidate in the next civic election. Chris? All right, we'll see if that happens. Thank you, Grace. And while on the topic of being green, frustrations tonight over the challenge and cost of obtaining a permit for solar panels in Metro Vancouver. Well, you might think municipalities would make it easy for homeowners to install this green technology. Ted Chernecki explains why many are criticizing a patchwork of regulations, creating too much red tape. Here's a rare sight, solar panels being installed in the first home in New Westminster, and yes, it is 2017. BC is light years behind the rest of the world when it comes to solar, making this homeowner a pioneer. The last month's bill was like $50, right? Even though we have an electric vehicle charging it, and we have two three-year-olds and a lot of washer and dryer time, right? So we only used up about 450 kilowatts. New Westminster is one of the better municipalities when it comes to bureaucratic red tape. Surrey, on the other hand, is terrible, says an installer we interviewed more than a year ago. So right now I have two jobs since December that we started this process that we still cannot get permits for. Nothing has changed. Actually, it's gotten more difficult. Even Alberta this year committed to having 30% of its power produced by renewable energy by 2030. You can see that the solar pa- the solar Automaker cells. Tesla is already marketing solar shingles where the whole roof is a panel. The industry here says BC needs to do what California did. Each municipality had to come up with its own rules to begin with. And eventually the state stepped in and made it easy for solar to be installed. And they set up a standard guideline that each municipality had to follow and a standard cost schedule. Installers here say they might have to pay up to $2,000 in fees in Surrey and wait months, where in Langley it's $50 and one day's wait. That needs to change, says BC's newly energized Green Party. Solar installations should be mainstream in British Columbia. If it requires provincial legislation to ensure that happens, so be it. And if you think Vancouver is too wet and cloudy for these panels to be effective, you'd be wrong. The technology is advanced to the point they'll produce 60% power, even in the rain. Ted Schrenecki, Global News. The father of Nick Lang, a teen who died in government care, is blasting lawyers for the province in connection with his civil suit tonight. It's been nearly 17 months since Peter Lang filed a lawsuit against the province claiming negligence in his son's death. Nick Lang died just six days after entering government-funded rehab in June 2015. Now, Peter Lang has received a letter from the province's lawyer saying that Nick isn't entitled to constitutional rights, essentially because he's dead. I'm not sure who would send a letter like that to a parent that basically argues that your child has no rights and... um, and that they're going to beat you in court because uh, they don't feel they were negligent. They've already admitted under oath that they dropped the ball in this case, and so they know that there was negligence in this case. So to try and take it from an angle that your son has no rights under the charter is, to me, kind of dirty. RCMP have issued a warrant for a man following the execution of two warrants that led to the seizure of drugs, firearms and cash in Chilliwack. The raid stemmed from a police investigation into drug trafficking. Officers seized vehicles and what investigators believed to be approximately four kilograms of cocaine. They got guns, cash and drug paraphernalia too. Two men are facing charges. One of them is still on the loose. A British Columbia-wide warrant has also been issued for Antonio Dillon Nolasco Padilla, 21 years old. He was released from custody 
and he now faces charges of possessing a controlled substance for the purpose of trafficking. RCMP say both men are known to police. Little relief for congestion and ice removal coming to the Alex Fraser Bridge. Today, the government announced it'll spend $5 million to install a cable sweeping system to remove ice and snow from the span, similar to what was installed on the Portman Bridge. It should be in place by the end of December. The province, along with the federal government, is also working on replacing the existing fixed median barrier with a temporary concrete median barrier to expand the number of travel lanes on the bridge to seven. In addition, they're also in the process of procuring a movable barrier system. The new lane and movable barrier is expected to be in operation in the fall of 2018. A day after we learned thousands of Atlantic salmon escaped a fish farm near Victoria, there are more calls tonight for better protection of our wild fish species. Critics are calling for a ban on open net fish farms at all and say it's not just the salmon that's at risk. Linda Aylesworth explains. As many as 300,000 Atlantic salmon escaped their open net pens earlier this week off the coast of Washington state, not far from Canadian waters. And that is a concern to a lot of people on our side of the border. They they can compete with uh, the Pacific wild salmon. And um, therefore, they, they do pose a danger to uh, wild salmon. They know no borders. The escape was not the reason today's anti-fish farm rally planned weeks ago was held in front of federal fisheries offices in downtown Vancouver. But it could hardly be ignored, not just because the escaped farm salmon might compete with our wild stocks. There is the risk that they are dispersing uh, pathogens and disease further out into the ocean and potentially uh, contaminating wild fish. That is a concern for many First Nations along BC's central coast in the Broughton Archipelago, where a third of BC salmon farms are located and where members of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, along with First Nations, have been videotaping inside the net pens. There's diseases and there's uncontrollable sea lice and could bring our wild salmon to extinction. But the aquaculture industry insists their fish are not a threat. It's been well documented and published that uh, less than 1% of the salmon on farms uh, might carry a, a pathogen uh, that would be of concern uh, to, uh, to wild salmon. Another concern, wild herring mixing with farmed fish inside the nets. Finding uh, herring in the nets is very disturbing because we have seen declines of herring. So extreme a decline that there have been no commercial herring fisheries in these waters since the farms moved in three decades ago. Is there a connection? There's no hard evidence. But I think we have enough evidence now uh, to suggest that we need to get the farms out of the water. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Broken limbs in East Vancouver. A very close call for residents in a neighborhood with a lot of older trees. A giant branch fell last night, damaging a couple of vehicles. Residents are worried there could be more ready to come down. What the city says about it in just over a minute. Taking on Amazon, how Google and Walmart are teaming up to create a new online retail giant later on the news hour. And Canadians calling up their American friends for lottery tickets. What would you do with that gigantic Powerball jackpot? Still to come. Now, residents of an East Vancouver neighborhood are angry and worried tonight and wondering if it's safe to walk down their streets. 
Kristen Robinson explains how a frightening close call from a fallen tree branch last night has them demanding action from the city. It could have been much worse. 8.30 p.m. Tuesday, a large tree branch in this East Vancouver neighborhood broke, hitting a power line before crashing down on two vehicles. There was a neighbor that was just a few feet away from the cable as it went down. It is of great concern because there was no weather last night. The, the branch simply snapped. Neighbors surprised no one was killed. When they warned the city about the trees on East 34th Avenue near Prince Edward last year, crews pruned them, but it didn't stop the carnage. It's the second tree in two years where this has happened, the tree right next to it, west of it. There was another limb that came down and took out two cars. Older trees also falling without warning on the west side. Two months ago, this giant suddenly split in Shaughnessy, toppling a big branch which took down hydro lines. And last June, a tree landed on a building in the West End, smashing several windows. No one hurt in either incident. As the city cleans up the latest limb launch, locals living in fear. We on the street would like the city to take this seriously and come by and, have, and really check out these trees thoroughly. They're old, um, the weather's had a huge play, they're coming down, the winds are stronger, and it's a huge safety issue. The Vancouver Park Board says an inspection of the downed branch showed it had no visible signs of defect prior to breaking, and that branch failures of this kind do occur from time to time and are a normal part of nature. Still, Urban Forestry will be conducting an incident review. Kristen Robinson, Global News. A popular Abbotsford farm and attraction for both tourists and locals has been heavily damaged by an early morning fire. The fire broke out just after 7 o'clock at Willow View Farms, sending a huge plume of smoke over the valley. A large storage barn, a big storefront, and some cooling units were damaged. But luckily, no people or livestock were hurt. Investigators are trying to determine the cause of the fire, which is a huge blow to the owners at a very busy time. This is our livelihood. We opened a week ago, just last, last Friday, we opened for the fall season, which is our really busy time here. And so now it's pretty devastating to, to have our store destroyed and um, our cooler was in the other part of the building, so that's, that's badly damaged as well. So it's, it's going to be a bit of a challenge to function now, but uh, we hope to get some sort of temporary structure up uh, real quickly to, so we can at least do sales. A routine play that might change the game of slow pitch forever. I want to see people going through what we're going through right now. What happened to Chris Godfrey could happen to anybody. And it's why helmets are about to become mandatory in the beer leagues. And inside the royal family, 20 years after Princess Diana's death, who Prince Harry blames for the crash. Of the thousands of people who play slow pitch softball in B.C., very few wear helmets. But a tragic injury on Vancouver Island appears to be changing that. Nitu Garcha tells us why helmets are already mandatory in some leagues and will be in many more next year. Sticking together is how this slow-pitch team is finding strength. After a horrific accident, critically injuring Chris Godfrey. He cared about everyone didn't have a mean bone in his body. The 32-year-old was playing in a charity slow-pitch tournament at Lewis Park in Courtney. It was Saturday morning, a bright day that quickly turned dark. Godfrey was running to first base when a throw from the shortstop hit his head and he collapsed. 
he wasn't wearing a helmet. The father and husband was flown to Victoria General Hospital, where he remains on life support. We don't want to see people going through what we're going through right now. It's strictly over a fun softball game. A big show of support at a candlelight vigil on Monday. The league shut down for two days and now there's a new mandatory helmet rule. We went out and bought helmets to put at each diamond. They are in honor of Chris. So we have ours on the back of the helmet with his number. The freak accident also sparked action from Campbell River Slow Pitch. It says there was a similar close call in a tournament this year, adding everyone should adopt this rule. South Island leagues agree. The unfortunate tragedy that's happened with Chris is is something that we've all had to honestly look at and uh, and make up our minds. Godfrey's wife Amanda wrote to their Ball family. She said in part, as I write this, tears fill my eyes while I read all the heart-filled posts about my amazing Chris. I just need you all to know I thank you for everything. There are no words. Please don't stop praying. You know, as a team, we decided that, you know, if we can't, can't be there physically for them, the least we can do is try to be there financially for them. A GoFundMe page has helped raise thousands. Godfrey's team, the Runny Rascals, won't be playing for the rest of the year. Instead, they'll be showing their respect and support for their teammate and dear friend. We love you, buddy. Love you, bud. We love you, Chris. We're fighting and for Amanda. you. We love you guys. Stick in there, Chris. You're strong. Rascal for life. Need to Garcha, Global News. Yeah, and obviously our thoughts go out to Amanda and the rest of the Godfrey family. Tough one. All right, classic cars attracting a crowd down at the PE tonight. It's a beautiful evening. The sun glinting off all that chrome. Thankfully, Christy's found some shade down there. Hi, Christy. Yes. It's a little cooler down here today, but perfectly comfortable. This is one of over 20 amazing hot rod cars down here at the PE that you can check out. This is not chrome. Chris, this is copper-plated 1950s Cadillac, 1,100 horsepower. It is worth over $600,000. And this beauty also has a matching wakeboard boat and helicopter. So incredible cars down here at the Peony that you can check out right through until Friday. And uh, I will be back with a look at a strong cold front that's moving through the province. Love that car. And boat and helicopter. Thanks very much, Christy. We'll check in a little later. Also, U.S. President Donald Trump goes on a tirade. The very dishonest media and they're bad people. Oh, we're not that bad, Donald. Attacking the media and fellow Republicans and who's now questioning his fitness for office. And battle of the sexes. Surprising research, to men at least, shows who has bragging rights when it comes to muscle endurance. A man protesting Donald Trump in Phoenix, Arizona, probably won't forget last night anytime soon. He takes a police pepper ball in a very sensitive part of his body in obvious pain. He managed to stumble away with some help. No word on how serious his injuries are. Trump took his latest roadshow to Nevada today, where he called for unity among Americans. A stark contrast to last night's speech, where he tore into his usual list of supposed enemies... That appearance sparking a particularly troubling reaction from the former U.S. spy chief. Tonight, more White House whiplash at the American Legion National Convention in Reno, a declaration of unity. It is time to heal the wounds that divide us. A presidential 180 from last night's unbridled offensive in Arizona. Repeal and replace 
repeatedly taking aim at the media. The very dishonest media, and they're bad people. They don't like our country. I really believe that. President Trump abandoning the discipline displayed just 24 hours earlier, his scripted Afghanistan speech. Instead, accusing the press of misrepresenting his highly criticized response to Charlottesville. They don't want to report that I spoke out forcefully against hatred, bigotry, and violence, and strongly condemned the neo-Nazis, the white supremacists, and the KKK. But Mr. Trump omitted his own most controversial words. Hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. You also had people that were very fine people on both sides. Former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper, who briefed the president during his transition, now questioning his fitness for office. I worry about, frankly, uh, uh, you know, the uh, access to nuclear codes. On stage, playing to the crowd like an aging rocker, delivering riff after riff, threatening a government shutdown over his border wall. Believe me, if we have to close down our government, we're building that wall. Outside, a wall of resistance, thousands of protesters. Inside, the president even antagonizing members of his own party, like Senator Jeff Flake. Who's weak on borders, weak on crime. House Speaker Paul Ryan tonight calling for his party to come together. I think it's important that we all stay unified as Republicans to, to complete our agenda. A retail war worth billions of dollars a year is about to heat up with Walmart and Google announcing they're teaming up to take on a common enemy, Amazon. At stake, dominance in the exploding sector of voice-activated shopping. In the battle of the retail giants, brick-and-mortar powerhouse Walmart now has an unlikely ally, tech titan Google. Two huge companies teaming up to take on the country's biggest online retailer, Amazon. This partnership keeps Walmart relevant. They've owned the retail space of the past, and this partnership with Google can propel them into the future. This Google-Walmart partnership starts in late September and will focus on voice-activated shopping. Alexa, buy paper towels. The top search result for paper towels is Boundy White. It's an emerging e-commerce trend that uses these high-tech speakers. Alexa, order more dog food. Amazon currently dominates the market with a popular gadget called the Echo. Shoppers can order products simply by speaking. Alexa, order trash liners. I found Glad Tall Trash Bags. Would you like to buy it? Yes. Google's answer to the Echo is the Google Home. Hey, Google. It links consumers to Google Express, a virtual shopping mall with more than 40 retailers. Walmart's the first one letting customers link their store accounts to Google so the tech company can examine their shopping history to reorder items faster and get recommendations. Voice ordering is the next frontier, many think, when it comes to ordering. And Walmart wants to make sure that they've put their stake in the ground. For Google, analysts say it's a chance to boost sales for Google Home, which lags behind the Echo. And for consumers... When companies compete, they innovate and, uh, you know, that lowers prices and makes it more convenient for the consumers. Giving shoppers... Alexa! Okay, Google. A voice. Joe Fryer, NBC News. The Google-Walmart collaboration won't be available in Canada at first, but that could change if it succeeds south of the border and if Google Home speakers become more popular in this country. On the tech front, Samsung is jumping back into the smartphone market. This follows last year's battery recall fiasco. The company unveiling its new Galaxy Note 8 with a dual-lens camera and the ability to open two apps at once, among other things. 
It marks a return for the company's flagship smartphone after millions of Note 7s were pulled off the market when some of their batteries caught fire. The new Galaxy 8 will set you back $1,300 without a contract, but you wouldn't really have to worry about that if you win tonight's Powerball lottery. I'm going to rent out a private cruise ship and invite everyone I've ever known in my entire life for the biggest party ever. Thousands of Canadians have been flocking across the border to join Americans in buying a $2 ticket for the $700 million U.S. jackpot. The odds of winning, of course, are astronomical. Just under one in 300 million, but that's not stopping the dreamers. The draw takes place at 7.59 our time, just in case you're wondering. Good luck. In health news tonight, a new UBC Okanagan study has some surprising results to some people on the relative strength of the two sexes. Researchers have found that while men are physically stronger than women, generally speaking, women have better endurance during muscle exercises. Eight men and nine women were asked to flex their foot against sensors as quickly as they could 200 times. They found that while males were faster and more powerful at first, they became more fatigued much faster than females. The researchers say it might be because of the difference in so-called slow-twitch muscles between males and females. Maybe it's just toughness. More proof live TV can be very unpredictable. What she like is now on the desk. A toddler takeover during a lunchtime interview and how the host handled it all. And some Hollywood heavyweights, the new list of top earners and their paychecks. No, Optimus Prime isn't Hollywood's highest paid actor, but he has a lot to do with who is the surprising new top three right after the forecast with Christy Gordon, who is out at the P&E again this evening on a beautiful night, and it just the good weather just keeps rolling along for the fair. Christy? I know. It does mean, uh, of course, dry weather for the interior, but it's great news for the P&E. Uh, Chris, this is Thomas H.G. What's your last name? Hathaway Graham. <laughs> how old are you? I'm 10 years old, turning 11 next month. And how many times have you come down to the P&E? Well, since... I was very, very young. Yeah, you've been coming down for a long time. And you watch Global News a lot. Yes. And you've got, you've got a nice little ball here. You, if you come down, anyone at home comes down, you can get a ball from us or a pin as well. Now, are you going to help me do the weather today? Yes. Great. But you also know a little bit about cars, I understand. Yes. What do you know about cars? Well, I know some of them are very fast, mm -hmm. and they are very good, and some of them are very rare to get these days. That's right. You do know a lot about cars. Yes. That's awesome. Okay, so let's get right into the weather forecast. It is a whole bunch cooler than it was yeah, yesterday, isn't definitely, it? Definitely, yeah. Definitely. So temperatures today, without the relative humidity as high yesterday, um, so things, I mean, those are your temperatures. 26 was the high in Langley though um, but much cooler I mean we were had the feels like at 34 degrees yesterday now when we look at the satellite image there's still a severe thunderstorm warning or watch in effect right now we're just tracking a few thunderstorms but the good news is it is bringing in a few scattered showers because of a cold front that's swinging through the province and that's why we saw the temperature drop in the last 24 hours but in behind it we do have a low pressure or an upper level low that's going to bring in potentially 15 millimeters of rain through some of the areas where we we need that rain. It's not going to be widespread, but we're hoping for some pockets of good precipitation in the next 24 hours. Here's a look at your forecast across the north. Thomas, what is it? What do you see there? 
I see that in uh, Sand Pit, it's 17, Sand Spit. That's right. Uh, it's 17 degrees. All right. Now I'll do the southern BC across the southern parts of the province. So the precipitation really is only going to head as far south as Williams Lake. It's a slight chance in Three Camus, but anywhere further south, we just have a chance of a thunderstorm, but really not much precipitation. There is a slight chance of a shower across the south coast, in particular near the North Shore Mountains and out in the Fraser Valley. Uh, that takes us into tomorrow, but otherwise dry conditions through much of the day tomorrow. And look at that five-day forecast. What do you yeah. think, Thomas? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. With that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. That is amazing. I agree. Chick Cheremy Sh- is celebrating her 100th birthday today, and our weather window for tonight is a great shot from, uh, that is, because it's We Love Water Wednesday. Christine Usselman sent us this. This is Nathan and Brody, and they're watering their garden with um, some water from their old earthquake kit instead of uh, putting it down the drain. So a great way to not waste water. You can get more water-saving ideas from welovewater.ca. Thanks so much, Thomas, for your help today. Yes, thank you so much. All right, Chris, we'll throw it back to you now. All right, good kid. Love his enthusiasm and love for cars, obviously. Thanks a lot, Christy. Well, Forbes is out with its annual list of highest paid actors, and you might be surprised with the top three. Then again, they're pretty famous, so maybe not. Topping the list, Mark Wahlberg. While he hasn't had any critically acclaimed blockbusters, Wahlberg has taken on a high volume of roles, earning $68 million over the last 12 months. Wahlberg dethrones former number one, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who fell to second place with just $65 million. His Fast and Furious co-star Vin Diesel rounds out the top three, earning $54 million. And you have to venture all the way down to the number 15 spot to find the highest paid actress. Emma Stone made $26 million last year. And another example of how anything can happen on live television, even during a newscast. You're all right. You just carry on there. Now, this was ITV's lunchtime news in the UK. Two-year-old Iris Ronka decided an interview with her mother Lucy and brother George about his milk allergies was, like, really boring and stuff. So she marched around the studio and even climbed up on the desk. Ever the professional anchor Alistair Stewart handled the interruption with aplomb and laughed it all off at the end. Has announced his... There's really nothing you can do. My favorite is still the guy, was it in South Korea, who was doing the thing on Skype, and the two kids came in the room. Oh, that's right. That was magic. (laughs) That was magic stuff. Okay. Uh, Let's hope for some magic for the Whitecaps tonight. Big game tonight. Seattle's in town. It's a derby, as they like to say, in football of that variety. Now football in the other variety. Why hasn't Chris Rainey had many happy returns this year? I don't know what's going on, but it's going to be right this week. I guarantee you that one. How can Rainey get into the end zone in 2017? That is the question. Also coming up, Prince William and Harry open up about their mother's death and the hardest thing they've had to come to terms with. Imagine the roof's going to be open at uh, BC Place tonight. Then it'll be probably a full house, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. And people from Seattle will be coming in as well. Those fans driving up the i It's always a good, even going back to the old NASL days, back at Empire Stadium, a Seattle-Vancouver game was always great. And tonight there will be one at BC Place. It's a busy week for the Caps. Saturday they're in Orlando. Uh, Tonight's game against the champions. Yes, the Sounders are the defending champs. Just like last year, Seattle didn't start great, and then they started getting their act together around now. 
Seattle comes into this game in their last seven, six wins and a tie. They've moved in the first in the west. The last time they played Vancouver, though, was way back in April, and the Caps won that game 2-1 when Freddie Montero, the former Sounder, was a hero for Vancouver. And, of course, the Caps are coming off a win in their last game, so this, this one should be good. We got a lot of respect. I got a lot of respect for Seattle. We know that they, they are our rivals. I'm sure when the whistle goes, we'll be arguing, shouting, um, complaining. Um, but it's going to be it's going to be a, a good game. You know, they're a good team. We know we're a good team. Uh, we're both in form. Speaking of in form, the team that Seattle beat last year for the championship, TFC, best team in soccer in this part of the world, and one of the reasons that guy right there, Giovanco. Beautiful goal against Philadelphia tonight to give Toronto a 1-0 lead just 10 minutes in from number 10. And then Nicholas Hasler, 20 minutes later, 2-0 at that point, 3-0 late in the game. Looks like Toronto's going to win another one, this one at home, against Philadelphia. The uh, Canucks did not win the Alex Kerfoot Derby. The son of uh, publicity-shy Whitecaps owner Greg Kerfoot, who ripped it up last year in Harvard, was one of the best players in the NCAA last season is going to sign with the Colorado Avalanche. Instead, the Canucks were on his short list, but maybe playing at home might have been a little too much pressure, and he has gone to Denver. So, is Saturday's game in Ottawa for the BC Lions, the game that Chris Rainey finally gets past everyone and scores either a punt or kick return touchdown? The Lions have struggled this year with allowing too many sacks and turning the ball over too much. They've also not been able to open up the holes for Chris Rainey to run through. When they do... Wins will come much easier. Yes, sir. Showtime. Showtime has been more like nap time for Chris Rainey, as the BC Lions return game has been put to bed by the opposition this season. Rainey's longest punt return has been 35 yards, and he's yet to break a kickoff or punt return for a touchdown this year. Every every arm return we get in this year is one man. One man, that one man, every time watching the film, we're like, man, that one guy. So we we bit, fixed that, we all good. Chris Rainey now bursting outside. Look out now. Rainey's got some room. He can fly. Good bye. A year ago, Rainey returned a pair of punts to the house. This year, he hasn't had a sniff of the end zone. This is from a guy who's quick, elusive, dangerous, and a threat to put six points up on the board every time the ball has kicked his way. So what gives? Oh, it's a lot of work because, you know, uh, the kicking team, they know who you have, right? So they're doing everything they can to, to you know, mess with your game plan. and They're kicking it well across. Or, so it's not easy also, right? Um, they're not making it easy on us, so, but we have to be able to respond right away on the fly. It's the same old thing, right? Uh, you know, one player, one missed block, uh, you know, one slip, uh, you know, one bad read. But, you know, the production's there. I think every game, uh, you know, he's had two or three runs over 30 yards. Uh, he just hasn't put the one in the end zone. That's, believe me, we all would love to see that. How hungry are you, though, to break one? Oh, <laughs> you're going to see this weekend. <laughs> all right, Canada. White Rock South Surrey against Japan today. Win this game, and Canada goes to the Final Four. But Japan is never easy. Although Canada did beat Japan last year. First inning... They hate to give up runs with two outs. Japan gets two, so it's 2 nothing. Um, Ty Fluitt in the top of the second. Men on first and second for Canada. Great position, but three straight strikeouts. That was the only hit Canada got all game. Japan was just unbelievable on the mound, and they were hitting home runs as well. 
10-0 the final. But Canada plays Mexico tomorrow, win that game, and they'll get Japan again in the International League final. Floyd Mayweather is one of the greatest defensive fighters ever. And that's why he's such a heavy favorite to beat rookie boxer Conor McGregor of mixed martial arts fame on Saturday in Vegas. But while defense wins championships, it's boring. So the hope is somehow McGregor's fearlessness can make it interesting, force Mayweather to get out of his game plan. And McGregor says he's not going to flip out. He's not going to do some UFC move if things go badly for him. He is in this to box. Taking the, 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 the Marcus of Queensberry rules very seriously, and I will go out and I will perform. I'm not going to um, look to implement any, anything. I'm going to outbox this man at his own game. And when it's all said and done, you know what? I'm going to feel a little bit sad because you should have all kept your mouth shut. You should have left me over on that other game that I'm from, that more ruthless game where we bounce heads off the canvas and drill them into the floor. You should have left me where I was because because this man is not on my level. When you take off your sunglasses, that means you're serious. Yeah, that's business. Yeah. All right, we'll see what they're planning. Tonight at 11, here's Andrew with a preview of Global News Tonight. Ant? Thanks, Chris. And we'll have a closer look at the investigation to the death of 13-year-old Marissa Shen as investigators plead for the public's help. We'll hear more from a criminologist critical of how RCMP is handling the investigation. Plus, Powerball frenzy. People on both sides of the border are hoping to cash in on tonight's $700 million jackpot. We'll hear what some of them would do with all that money. And we'll have the winning numbers as well. That's all coming up tonight at 11 o'clock. Chris? Fun to dream, isn't it? All right, thanks very much, Anne. And when we come back, uncommon and brutal honesty from royalty. That's next. Well, in some of his most blunt comments yet, Prince Harry is tearing into the paparazzi who chased his mother on the day she died. His older brother talking about honoring her legacy with the way he lives his life. Both interviews in a new documentary that will air this Sunday. 20 years after his mother's tragic death, an angry Prince Harry points fingers. I think one of the hardest things to come to terms with is the fact that the people that chased her through the, into the tunnel were the same people that were taking photographs of her while she was still dying on the back seat of the car. In the new documentary, Prince Harry not only blamed the paparazzi for the crash that killed his mom, but said they stood by and watched her die. She'd had a quite a severe head injury but she was very much still alive on the back seat and those people that that caused the accident instead of helping were taking photographs of, of her dying on the back seat and then those photographs made it made their way back to uh, to news desks dozens of photographers chased after the car princess diana was in just before it lost control inside a paris tunnel 20 years ago part of the problem in paris was this desire by the gathering media circus for a picture. Nearing the anniversary of Diana's death, the what-ifs still persist. It'll either make or break you, and I wouldn't let it break me. Prince William simply called it the hardest moment of his life. I wanted her to be proud of the person I would become. I didn't want her worried or her legacy to be that, you know, William and or Harry were completely utterly devastated by it. William and Harry said they specifically waited for the 20th anniversary to speak so publicly about their mother's death. 